Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House, but more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet rows of history. Neil, how's it going? Oh, it's good. I'm excited to like get out of the heavy presidencies and explore like something completely different today. I'm I'm really, you know, kinda geared up for this one. Yeah, it's been a while since I've not come in with extreme pre- uh, bias <laughs> or had a firm opinion of of the president. Uh, I'm I'm an open I'm a blank slate, Neil. So I'm ready for you to to fill me up with your knowledge. That's how I'm dirty. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm ready. So the last time around, uh, we finally finished Woodrow Wilson, which was a doozy of a two-parter. And that was coming off the heels of a victory of JFK against the son of nepotism, the original son of nepotism. And somehow, JFK survived Woodrow Wilson. It was a shocker. So, Neil, JFK, the mythical creature, who is he coming up against today? Today, he's got possibly a strong opponent in Chester Arthur. The year is 1881. We're in the Gilded Age of America, or at least halfway through it. Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell formed the Oriental Telephone Company. Kansas becomes the first U.S. state to prohibit all alcoholic beverages. Boo, Kansas. The Tuskegee Institute opens in Alabama. And if you don't know anything about Tuskegee, it's incredibly important to the United States. And it's also... One of the darkest moments in history of the United States. Billy the Kid is shot and killed by Pat Garrett outside of Fort Summer. The gunfight at OK Corral occurs in Tombstone, uh, Arizona. That's that's a lot of old West. I don't. I, I remember asking you, Neil, who's the president of the of the Westerns, and it apparently it's Chester Allen. James A. Garfield, president of the United States, is shot by a lawyer, James J. Gatio, at Go at Baltimore. He survives the shootings but suffers from infection of the wound, dying in September 19. Thus, our boy Chester Allen, the vice president of the United States, becomes the 21st president of the United States. How convenient is that? Neil, take it away. Okay, Yusef. So today we encounter the problem we can sometimes run into with presidencies and that you know, when you hear a name that is so unknown that it can just You know, feel underwhelming, like when when you get that first like like breath that you know Chester Arthur. Who in the world is Chester Arthur? You know, he must not be that important. You know, I've never heard. You know, and he's if someone's never heard, most people, sorry, have never heard of him. And he sits in the list of this post Lincoln era of the most forgotten American presidents. And look, I hear you, imaginary audience. You know, Chester Arthur. Sounds like he could provide, you know, one of the most uneventful presidencies because of that. But, you know, stay with me here, everyone, because Chester is not who you think he is. There's, you know, so much more to him than, you know, what his middle of the 1800s name implies. And really, everyone could be in for a real surprise today, as he may. I don't know. I have I have high hopes for a man named Chester. 
Yeah. I mean, if if you rise to the to the top of the ranks in the political atmosphere with a name like Chester, you must be name. doing something right. Yeah, Chester. I mean, that I feel like that should make a comeback at some point. But <laughs> I think you know he could be maybe one of the most underrated presidents in American history. I, I think that. I think Chester Cheetah really tainted that name. I don't think anybody's going to go back to Chester. Okay. Well, do you want Chester who? Chester Cheetah? Isn't that the name of the Cheeto guy? Chester? The Tiger? The Tiger? Chester. Oh, I don't know. Is his name Chester? Chester Tiger? Tiger King? <laughs> no, the, the Cheeto guy. Chester. Oh, the Cheeto guy. Oh, I think you're talking about Tiger yeah. King. I don't know. Chester. Is he called Chester? Chester the yeah, Cheeto Chester guy? Cheetah. Oh. Yeah, well, Chester Cheetah is a fictional a... character of the in the official mascot of Frito Lay Cheetos. Chester Cheetah, come on, man! All right, we're starting a new podcast. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> mascots, fictional mascots of of uh, snacks, and I'm gonna be the host because you clearly are not up to date with your history. No, no, not at all. I had no idea. See, was... see, sometimes I teach you something. For sure. No, now I gotta. Think about. I'm trying to think of all the other mascotted chip brands, what their <laughs> names are. But anyway, this makes me. I you know. I, I'm glad you're optimistic for this episode because you and I both know at this point, for that final question in the end to have any meaning by the time we get there, the president we're covering, you know, must have a decent morality barometer in their decision making that somewhat holds up to our 2022 standards and. Let's face it, you know, there are only a handful of presidents so far that have had that in their resumes. But someone like Grant was a fantastic surprise for us, right? And Oh, fun so- fact, his uh, son, Ulysses S. Grant III, was born in 1881. Now you mentioned him. Oh, oh wow, yeah, that's, a, that's another niche one. And also, when <laughs> I mean, I wanted to, like, bring it up. I thought that you might, I thought you might spoil, or not spoil it, but I thought you might shout it out. I mean, the fact that... Chester Arthur takes over on September 19th, 113 years before on board. Pretty eerie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, great. Fantastic surprise. And to some extent, even JQA might keep trying to do that. John Quincy Adams was very moralistically guided compared to most presidents. So with him, there's like, you know, not a lot of concrete success, concrete success as president to show for it. But Chester yeah. Arthur... Okay, I'm just going to say, you know, right here, he could actually be a legit contender as a top president, believe it or not, especially when it comes to this, you know, morality category that I put so much weight into. What a way to remember our podcast, you know, Chester Arthur, the greatest American president. You know, I think we probably would stand alone in that claim, but, you know, it, it could happen. <laughs> hey, and, man, you know, that's, that's the only way to... That's the only way to make money off the podcast game and it's pandering to the Chester Allen base. Yeah, I mean that's how that's what everybody knows. Where the money is is where <laughs> Chester Allen Arthur is. Nothing to push back on with that. That sounds so correct. You know, and again, this is not my my claim. You know, my whole build up here is not necessarily because Arthur was altogether brilliant or had a shining policy achievement that changed our world for the better uh, for generations to come, but more so because he's able to do something that is arguably more challenging and novel than any other presidential achievement. And this is a weird one. You know, he's able to disappoint his friends without really any incentive to do so for the greater good of the country. That's an underrated feat, you said, because most people would do anything for their best friends. I mean, I would do a lot of 
shitty stuff for you probably you know and as we know politicians you know maybe more than any profession need help along the way to get them to the power that they attain in their career and of course that's especially true when it comes to reaching the american president chester arthur didn't just have people in his corner that found it convenient to support him on his path to higher office he had the ultimate champion and mentor paving the way for him delivering him you know all the relevant political roles he attained throughout his career or at least most of them his friendship and reliance on this man was greater than you know madison's reliance on jefferson hamilton's reliance on washington and i'll even go as far as, as to say george w's reliance on george hw chester uh, chester arthur's ultimate and strongest advocate for an individual in american politics was none other than new york senator roscoe conkling you ever heard of that guy <laughs> Are we really going to discuss the 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 bromance of Roscoe and Chester? That's yes. that's today's podcast. Nice. This is the podcast today. I, you are in for a throwing right? throwing a Herbert Hoover and uh what was that Grover Cleveland and we have like a grade two going of weird political names. Yeah. Yeah, this one, this is a really fun one. I said this era just has a lot of great names, I will say. I mean, Grover was good like We both admire Grover. And I feel like what are the other ones we went through? I mean, I like Ulysses. It's kind of hard for me to say. Yeah, Ulysses. I like Herbert. I like Herbert a lot. He's a little later, but I mean, that is also a cool name. Going forward here, you know, I just want you to kind of like sit back. You can even close your eyes. Just like imagine you're in 1860s New York City. You know, you, you've seen the movie Gangs in New York, right? Yeah, like that movie is shot to reflect the setting of NYC in the year of 1862. So we're just going to jump right into that world, all right? Conkling is probably my favorite politician I never learned about in all my education. And he's like, he's a Wait, proud... Are, are, what what I'm, what are, are, are we fighting in the streets? And if so, what <laughs> is our blue-collar job slash nickname? <laughs> I, I am not creative enough to even... But blue-collar job, I don't know. What, what are blue-collar jobs in the 1860s? I'm just a fake hey, there was uh, The main story. bad guy in, in that movie was the butcher, you know? Oh, no, that's right. There are butchers, yeah. There were the, the, was the priest, and I think there was the barber. Probably like a banker. I don't know. That's not a blue-collar <laughs> job, though. I don't even, yeah. Oh, my God, here comes the accountant. That would be me. I'm an accountant, sorry. There you go. So there everybody go. fears the accountant when in a fight. <laughs> It is all, I mean, you really pulled the strength of everybody else. You could have. <laughs> but Conkling, I like that I like that last name, too. It's kind of fun to say. Anyway, a, a proud abolitionist, he's one of the fiercest defenders of civil rights for black people before and after the Civil War, and one of President Grant's greatest allies and advocates as well. He publicly called President uh, Franklin Pierce a British tool for being open to slavery expanding while Franklin was president. And so that was, you know, main like the British part being that the cotton trade was a lucrative business for the Brit British economy. And he was one of the original founders of the Republican Party in 1856 when the Whig Party disintegrated. So, you know, one of his political heroes being Henry Clay, who had formed the Whig Party. And, you know, ironically, Conkling is probably the most comparable Henry Clay type of figure to this, of his day, never actually attaining the presidency, but probably you know, the most gifted politician of this generation. And so Little Clay. Clay to Conkling. His Conkling's influence over New York politics was, you know, profound and incredibly important for determining who could hold powerful positions in New York 
as he essentially, or he eventually attained the position as one of the U.S. senators in New York after a brief stint in the House in 1867. Conkling was, you know, one of the leaders of what would be known as, you know, the radical Republicans, a fierce advocate of the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that were so crucial for expanding civil rights to Black Americans, even helping to write the 14th Amendment. And going on to become the leader of the stalwarts of the Republican Party when it would form factions in the 1870s, which we'll talk more about that later. But essentially, this was the part of the party that was so dedicated to protecting civil rights in the American South of Black people. And another faction of the party called the Half-Greens would rival Conkling's side and oppose many of the standing policies from Reconstruction to focus on civil service reform and cleaning up government, so to speak. And so this is where we get to the tough contrast of, you know, what we had to swallow with Grant's presidency, because as much of a hero Grant was, he was often, you know, naive and aloof to the corruption that took place in his own administration. Conkling goes a bit further in the fact that he is comfortable in keeping corruption as a vital part of politics in the state, um, mainly mm. because it keeps him in control of national politics in general. Something. Well, isn't that convenient? Yeah, and it, 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 I bet he that. would. I bet he would have like a strong against if it didn't keep him in power, wouldn't he? Right, probably. But there's a lot of you know muddiness in here, all right? Good old so, Roscoe, huh? Roscoe with the moral gray compass. Yes, yes. But at the same time, yeah, it, it, it's a complicated story. When we get into it, you know, something. You know, he, he's not really ever willing to give up this kind of power structure he attains. And so you got to understand that New York is easily the most important and well, the easily the most important state in the country during this time period. Um, 75% of all national imports came through it, meaning all the goods, services, and most importantly, money came in just through that state. And so therefore, its influence on national politics was far greater than anywhere else in the country. Now, this is where I want to introduce you know, Chester Arthur more so into the episode because he becomes an instrumental part in maintaining Conklin's grip and influence on national politics, acting as, you know, a loyal servant to the senator. Now, you know, I don't want to be unfair to Arthur because he does have an outstanding career before he gets involved in the Conklin, you know, New York political machinery. He's born in Vermont and he aspired to become a lawyer in New York City to, you know, achieve wealth, fame, and relevancy in the world, as there were, you know, few other places in the country where there were opportunities to do so, and did so as a clerk in a law firm headed by Erastus D. Culver, one that advocated for the civil rights of Black people, you know, before the Civil War. Chester Arthur was one of the main figures in huge wins for the firm in legal battles such as the Lemon case, um, with Culver's firm successfully arguing that the Compromise of 1850 was violated when seven slaves were brought from Virginia to New York City jail for the purposes of being stored while they awaited to be transported to the state of Texas. So all the slaves that, you know, rep that were represented by Culver in the case were freed as a result. Arthur also took part in another groundbreaking case at Culver that was had, you know, depressingly similar facts to Rosa Parks' almost 100 years later where you know, she was arrested for sitting in a seat that was designated for whites only on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus. The Culver case here in 1854 was established when a woman named Elizabeth Jennings was forced out of you know, uh, a streetcar she was riding on in New York City 
and instructed to get on the next one because of her skin color. So at this point, when Arthur's firm took up the case, he was no longer a clerk, but a partner at the firm and successfully argued the act as a violation of Jennings' civil rights, earning $225 from the streetcar company, which is a lot of money in, uh, 18, in the 1850s. And it ended the practice of New York streetcar companies refusing to see black people in the state. The next line of work in Chester's Arthur's, in Chester Arthur's career you know, came from the outbreak of the Civil War. You know, at this point, relatively famous in New York from his high-profile legal cases and was awarded a position as quartermaster general and you know, later brigadier general, just the higher rank as he became best known during the war at being able to, you know, most efficiently organize the housing and equipment troops needed when they came into New York City to get, to, you know, recover or get re-equipped. Um, he would then, you know, serve in this role until 1863 and then continue to you know, practice law, helping clients, you know, that sued the government for damages they inflicted from the war. And his firm grew in wealth and stature, along with Arthur's finances and his reputation. It's kind of weird, actually, that back then, I feel like people just got involved in the war, no matter what they did. You wouldn't think that, like, just a lawyer would, you know, be named a general. That's just always something that's, like, weird before he even, yeah. He had achieved, you know, the, the pinnacles of fame that a lawyer, you know, could achieve all the while representing clients that were discriminated against and, you know, most mistreated in society. And, you know, it was in this context that Arthur started to become good friends with Roscoe Conklin, as both shared, you know, some moralistic values that were not common for the political elite at their time. As their friendship became more concrete in the late 1860s, so did Conklin's political career. As became, he became the chairman of the Republican National Committee after achieving a Senate seat in 1867. Conkling had, you know, immense control over the New York political machine by the time the 1868 election rolled around, and he used it to successfully back Ulysses S. Grant to the president. So now... It's our boy. Uh, right. That's so, the best president of all time, legally binding. Oh, wait, it's not. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that, you know, if we had a poll from our audience, I think that they would agree that I've made all the right calls so far. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll, I, I have I have direct contact with one of our listeners, and he does not agree with your statement. That's just one, all right? I'm, He's the one that matters in my heart. Shout out to Alberto Tamo. Well, I'm sorry, but I, you know, I'm going to have JFK on the table here soon if that keeps up, but we'll see. <laughs> um, you know, with the, now with the ally in the White House, Conkling moved to put his allies in power over the economic hub of the country, and Commits Grant to appoint Chester Arthur to, you know, one of the most powerful and lucrative positions in New York as, you know, the collector of the port in the state. You know, people may be wondering what the big deal is to be collector of the port of New York, but it is extremely important in the 1870s. You know, first, you know, Chester became the highest paid federal officer in the country, making more money than the actual president. Um, and he had, you know, supervision over 1,300 agents who directed the cash flow of imports put in place Conkling loyalists across the department. This is where things get a bit morally hard to swallow, you said, because on the one hand, Chester Arthur and Roscoe Conkling were champions of maintaining and strengthening political corruptions and political corruption into American politics. Because, you know, out of 1,300 employees, you know, how are you going to be able to figure out, you know, where everybody stands politically and, you know, if they're loyal to the Republican Party in this case? And you have them take political ideology surveys or what they called campaign assessments. Individuals within the department 
um, that theoretically are supposed to be, you know, nonpartisan positions were rewarded if they showed loyalty to Cochrane's specific faction of the Republican Party with higher positions and by giving their friends positions as well. And this system kept Conkling in control of, you know, how and where a lot of the, you know, the country's wealth was distributed and organized, along with mm -hmm. Arthur, and solidified a lot of early Republican dominance as a party in the post-Civil War era. You know, loyalty to Conkling in this structure was everything, and the people who followed in line were rewarded. You know, let's take a second to just look past all the corruption for once. So it is really bad that the federal government is... It's just, sorry, pose a question. Want to rephrase that? Is it really wanna... bad? <laughs> no, 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 but <laughs> I just wait, no. That, that sentence stands, but is it really bad if the federal government is bravely defending the civil rights the Union fought for in the South and passing all these extremely important amendments and putting down the Ku Klux Klan? Like, is it bad to be that corrupt then? Those are the people that yes. are in power don't justify the means, Neil. Ends don't justify the means. Yes, it's amazing what they're doing, and I applaud them, and it's awesome that they were doing it. But you a bad is a bad. You cannot look over a bad. That's, that's we have but, to stand in morality in all in, in in every sense of the world. Because if somebody did that with the ends to pr promote, like uh, Woodrow Wilson, to promote all the bad in the world, then you would be like, oh, corruption is bad, and that's what leads to corruption. So we cannot we cannot play at both sides. No, that's my opinion. Okay, but look. This era is somewhat of a standout for political corruption in American politics, which is saying a lot. So it feels <laughs> like Conkling, it feels like Conkling and Grant, to some extent, may have just been winning the corruption wars that had to happen in order for them to get to and stay in power. We gotta respect the context of the era in that sense, I think, mm -hmm. instead of having you know that strict 2022 lens on it. I don't, I don't mean to you know put that like you know label on you or anything, but. Oh, the same. Okay. 2022 label. I feel passionate about, you know, the party fighting for, you know, this. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta get a little bit, you can't always take the high road, you know. I remember, like, back in 2015, 2016, everybody was quoting Michelle Obama, which says, you know, when they go low, we go high. And look how that ended up. 2016. <laughs> All right, sorry. That was a little bit too much of a partisan take right there. Um, yeah, but that's that's a far more complicated aspect of just somebody saying don't <laughs> do go go lie. That's the fair enough. Fair. Nevertheless, there are Republicans that start to see that you know what they're doing is kind of messed up, which is letting these corrupt practices flourish in the federal government, and a split in the party starts to develop because of this. The stalwarts who favored political pat patronage in a loyalty-based system were led by Roscoe Conkling. But the half-breeds, meant to mean only half-Republican, kind of a weird name, so yeah, not a big fan of the name, but favored civil service reform in a merit-based system for achieving key federal positions. And so these two factions of the Republican Party first come head-to-head -head in the election of 1876, with Rutherford B. Hayes, the you know half-breed, I guess, for in this case, winning the Republican nomination in the general election. Conkling never made a serious run of the presidency for that election. But he did try to stop Hayes from winning from behind the scenes in a very, you know, Alexander Hamilton-esque sort of way in which, you know, he decided to not openly support John Adams back in the turn of the 19th century. Conkling was known to express his distaste for Hayes' ideas about civil service reform. And interestingly enough, Hayes lost the state of New York 
in the general election, as well as the popular vote. And, you know, along with the election of 1960 and 2000, it is, you know, right up there as the most contentious election in American history with Hayes kind of shadily winning, still winning the electoral vote. Um, There will be more detail in the Hayes episode on that. But, you know, Conkling, instead of being happy that a member of his own party was able to win, actually publicly states that he thought Tilden, the Democratic opponent to Hayes in the election, won the election and calls Hayes his fraudulency. Um, yeah, well, 18, 1870s beef. Hayes doesn't take kindly to that, obviously. And as president, specifically targets Conkling's political machine of corruption and bribery. He signed an executive order banning the political assessments that were instituted in Arthur's department. And he investigates Arthur's employees in the New York Customs House, which, you know, one of the reports found that political favoritism and blatant patronage governing appointments exposed the practice of, you know, salary kickbacks and then charged the poor authority with being criminally overstaffed. It's not really a surprise, right? This investigation, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually gives Hayes the momentum to fire Chester Arthur as port collector after serving for seven years. So Conklin goes on to engage in this war with Hayes as a senator by rejecting some of his, you know, federal appointments for Senate, something that, you know, again, we'll get more into in the Hayes episode. But this looks to be the end for Arthur as he's Firmly humiliated, and he had a good without run. a political position. All right, yeah, Neil. So uh, let's close out the episode then. Um, <laughs> Come on, you have no. Everybody wants to know how in the world does Chester then become vice president? Okay, well, you're in for a treat here. The election of 1880 was tricky for the Republican Party because Hayes was not running for re-election. He was wait wait adamant. what what year what year was he fired? Just so there's a, just to show Eight. the gap between. 1878, so he's got two years. So two years, two years. Yeah, he was adamant on just serving one term like Polk was, uh, like like Polk was adamant on. And so Republicans don't have an incumbency advantage in this election. And even worse, they're you know very well divided at this point between stalwart and half-breed sections of the party. You know, again, the half-breed one, James C. James G. Blaine, the champion of civil service reform, and Conkling wanted you know who Ulysses S. Grant to serve a third term. Grant he should have. He should have. Grant, no, Grant was hundred percent going to run again if he won the 1880 nomination, which is something that I think I missed in the prior episode, which would have been quite a comeback story for him. Blaine and Grant caused a deadlock in the convention, and it's clear that neither side has enough support to become the nominee. So instead, the party decides on a compromise candidate. James Garfield, who is sympathetic to civil service reform, but not fully committed. So he's kind of a neutral candidate for the party to get behind. And Garfield is reasonably skeptical that Conkling is, is going to support him. Though. So he pulls a move to really, you know, tug at his heartstrings and asks Chester Arthur to be his running mate. So um, it was just a, just a chess move. It is a chess move. Just right. like asking out the the daughter of the boss, so the boss doesn't follow you. Yeah, no, that analogy makes sense actually. I've never, yeah, yeah, I've never actually heard that one. But Conkling asked Arthur to reject Garfield's ass, but for probably you know the first time in their careers, they get into an argument about the situation. As Arthur will probably never have an opportunity to achieve a high political office again by turning this down, and Arthur tells Conkling the office of vice president is. A greater honor than I ever dreamed of attaining. And so 
you know, even as Conkley and Arthur Pat like clashed, Conkling eventually said, okay, fine. You know, you can have Arthur, like we're going to make this a compromise thing. And he campaigned for their ticket. So we're back. We're unified as a party. Garfield and Arthur go on to win the election in 1880. And it feels like, yeah, the Republican Party is back on track. That lasts for like not even a month, though, as Chester quickly finds out that Garfield may have been playing him to get Conklin's support and win the election. Something that Conklin kind of saw ahead of uh, Chester Arthur, because he was kind of seeing a chess move, as you said, and then asked him to not take the vice presidency spot, and then it all kind of got messed up. Arthur expects that Garfield, you know, will appoint some of Conklin's loyalists back into the ranks of top positions in the federal government. But he instead starts appointing the civil civil service minded faction, you know, to those positions instead, and makes, you know, Blaine the Secretary of State and his new administration, who is Conkling's worst political enemy. This is where I think the situation gets really wild. All right, the Senate that existed at the time in the 47th United States Congress was made up of 37 Republicans, 37 Democrats, and then one Independent who was really like a Democrat, like you know, a Bernie of the day, and then one. Uh, party, it's called like a readjuster, um, which is like a complicated thing I don't want to get into. And then there's four vacancies, all right? Back in this day, the president could fill these vacancies for the Senate. And so, you know, immediately the Democrats are trying to organize the Senate, you know, knowing that like the, these vacancies are going to be filled by Republicans. It's kind of like a very stressful, complicated situation because they don't, you know, want to have this, you know, four like Senate loss or like these four positions necessarily like filled in right away without some kind of compromise and like finding like a political balance there. Garfield um, you know wouldn't be able to get his appointment isn't able to get his appointments through because you know the Republican faction of the Senate led by Conkling you know they were skeptical of his judgment too and they did everything they could to delay votes in retaliation for Garfield being aggressive against their faction of the party. The Senate kind of went to a deadlock for two months over Garfield's nomination because of Conkling's opposition. When, you know, Conkling, you know, when uh, Garfield's Senate appointments finally do get confirmed, Conkling and the other senator from New York at the time, Thomas C. Platt, resigned in protest of Garfield's continuing opposition to their faction. And so this is to try to further, you know, throw the Senate into chaos and derail Garfield's presidency. Conking believes that, you know, he'll win back his Senate seat easily in the next November election to fill it. So it's just a tactic, which is a very extreme tactic. This is like really, if you want to think about Wild Wild West stuff, this is like as, you know, much as it gets in like politics. It's a tactic to just like slow Arthur down completely that, you know, really kind of works. Because the, the Senate has to go into recess without filling in those two vacancies in which he just can't put his, uh, can't push a Republican agenda through without having the Senate seats go to Republicans. Once the Senate goes into recess, that's when Garfield on July 2nd is shot by Charles Guiteau. Coincidence? Is, I've never actually heard of conspiracy theory with this, but do you, do you know of one? No, I'm just saying there's a big, big freaking coincidence. So Guiteau, interestingly enough, he is a deranged office seeker was in who believed that Garfield's successor would appoint him to, you know, well, the, Chester Arthur, that is, I shouldn't say successor, we know who his successor is going to be, but that he would appoint him to a job in the federal government, as, you know, he used to, you know, just do that often with his New York roles. And so he 
you know, proclaim the onlookers, you know, I'm a stalwart and Arthur will be president. And so this was really like an assassination to get the vice president to be president. It's really wild. Him and Arthur didn't Was he like, was he taken seriously or was he like, look at this weirdo creep over here? People thought talking. that he was men- mentally unstable. He wasn't Obviously. really necessarily taken seriously. Um, they really only had like a little bit of like Arthur and um, Gateau, that is, really only had like very like small connection. I think that they had like met a couple times, but you know, there was like even found like 29 days before um, the execution for shooting Garfield, that is, for Gateau, he you know published a lengthy poem, uh, or sorry, it was, it was unpublished, but he wrote a poem, you know, claiming that Arthur knew the assassination had saved the United States, and it also states that, you know, he presumed that Arthur would pardon him for the assassination, which did not happen. And so, like, there was this, this weird lull, because, you know, Chester Arthur probably felt pretty bad about this, right, because it kind of seems like he's somewhat responsible for somebody assassinating the president. You know, him and Garfield weren't necessarily getting along when he got shot, but he didn't like take the initiative to then just go take over the presidency. It actually became a problem that there was this like lull in like who was actually the acting president because we didn't have you know the Twenty Fifth Amendment at the time. We didn't really have these standards of you know how you know the vice presidency assumes the role of the presidency whenever the president is you know very ill or like you know can't you know perform the duties and so. We just kind of didn't have a president for two or three months because um, Arthur just wanted to give a restrained, you know, I'm again, like support structure around Garfield. And then he did eventually pass. And then that's when things went into motion and Arthur took over the presidency. How do you feel, Yusuf? It feels we- it feels icky, but let's move on. <laughs> okay. Gosh, okay. Arthur, you know, you would expect at this point from what we've heard, right? Like, he has been somewhat of a, you know, not not like a innovator in like political corruption, but definitely didn't have a problem with maintaining, you know, Conkling's power and like, you know, really buying into these systems to, you know, help his career. You know, he really surprised people coming in because he wanted to make it clear that he was not controlled by anybody. He thought that was the most important part of the presidency, that he kind of had this like Supreme Court justice sort of, well, at least like classical Supreme Court justice kind of stature to it where like, you know, you are supposed to be a nonpartisan. And so even though he was very anti-civil service reform, since Garfield was, you know, it, it, he was the one who was elected. He was the one who kind of got elected off of that issue. He like, the sorry, Arthur, because of that, pushed for civil service reform. In 1883, 1883, he signed the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. In um, you know, some of this was political. You know, Republicans like he didn't sign it until you know two years later after he was put in office. But he did show like a lot of you know encouragement for a civil service reform bill. It's just that the stalwarts of the party didn't let him you know get the legislation through Congress, and him and Conkling were at odds. Where Conkling felt like he was betrayed. It's very interesting because like, it's always so rough, right? When high school sweethearts go to college and then they just start like breaking up because you know they're growing apart. Each gets their own personality. You know what was thought of, you know, a long term relationship is just bitter exes. It's just yeah. so sad to see. 
Yeah, but it, it, it's funny because he still tries to throw Conkling like a... He still tries to help him out in a sense, but I think Conkling felt insulted by this, which is like weird. Well, not weird, but it's just... He, he tries to offer him a seat on the Supreme Court twice during his presidency, and Conkling rejects both the times that he like offered this position. Uh, I think he's the last person to ever reject a Supreme Court nomination. At least twice, anyway, I should say. Because I think Taft rejected it once, but I'm not sure on that one. The penalty act is signed. It bans salary kickbacks, which are just essentially like bribes um, that are, you know, that go beyond just like what a normally sa- normal salary pays you. It apportioned federal appointments among the states and ruled that new employees must begin their service at the bottom of the career ladder and they can only advance by merit exams. So that's why we have this great, clean, you know, perfect government today. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Chester Arthur. <laughs> um, there is some, there's some debate on like, you know, how important this legislation was. It wasn't retroactive for one, which mean, which meant that you know, Republicans who had gotten their positions because of, you know, the old system of like patronage, um, you know, they could remain in their offices and in their positions, even if like Democrats, you know, started winning the next presidential election. And so, you know, Democrats weren't necessarily, like, applauding the legislation as something as, like, Chester Arthur is, like, oh, this great person, you know, like, just more so just, like, oh, like, you know, everybody was really angry that Garfield was assassinated, and so, like, Chester was kind of forced into this position. That's a very skeptical or pessimistic way to look at Chester Arthur, but the fact that he did, I think that that, that argument is extinguished because... He really pushed for it like way before when it was even passed and actually followed through like by appointing like, you know, even like Democrats into, you know, this new like regulation position with, you know, which like this uh, Pendleton Act created, which they had to like, you know, survey like, you know, departments were most vulnerable to political patronage and how to stamp them out. He was very, very serious about that process, which you, you didn't need to be. Another matter is, you know, another big part of Chester Arthur's presidency is over what issue, Yusef? The reason why I'm asking. Well, tariffs. Tariffs. All right. Boom, I'm paying attention. Yes, tariffs were also a big issue even in Chester's presidency because Republicans, you know, traditionally had always encouraged higher tariffs because, you know, it produced more like monopoly power and like, you know, it was better for, you know, the business men or business people of you know the north northeast and like it was just like how they kind of like cemented like their party support and dominance and so arthur actually you know took a degree of like again independence and you know he was extremely cautious about it but you know since you know there was such you know high tariffs in the treasury for so long the Treasury had a, a surplus, and so, you know, they wanted to kind of cash out on that. He wanted the tariff to get dropped by 20 to 25 percent across the board, which is like a, a ginormous reduction and like a drastic one that really had never been done in those days. Congress didn't really let that happen, right? They just only reduced it by an average of 1.47 percent. You know, it was very alienating because the part of the party that were like the half-breeds that were not the stalwarts, you know, were very against this uh, measure because that was kind of their bread and butter of Republican politics. You know, civil service reform, high tariffs. And, like, you know, the stalwarts weren't necessarily as dedicated to the tariff, but they were, like, anti-civil service reform. So he was making no friends in the party at all about being president. 
not really helping himself to a re-election, but he was very independently acting and independently minded. You know, he's kind of the last president as well to try to, you know, maintain a lot of the reconstruction, like, policies and, like, really still try to act on, you know, protecting civil rights in the South. You know, at this point, though, reconstruction has ended and, you know, the momentum is going in the opposite direction. And so there's only so much that Chester Arthur can do with a presidency that has, you know, very little power compared to a post-World War II era. But there's also that to his credit. You know, during this time, there was also, you know, a lot of, you know, and, you know, anti-Chinese and, you know, immigration um, in terms of like, you know, Congress wanted to, you know, ban Chinese immigrants from coming into the country. Chester Arthur pushed back against that as much as he could. They wanted to ban, you know, this, this led into the Chinese Exclusion Act, which bans Chinese immigrants from coming to the country for 10 years. But it would have been 20 years without Chester Arthur's like threat veto the whole legislation. So it's kind of hard because he still signed the legislation, which looks really bad. But at the same time, like he tried to diminish as much of the consequences and tried to stick up for Chinese immigrants in general um, and point out their contributions. And so and that's a weird, muddy area as well. You know, he doesn't have a super eventful presidency, right? Like, this is kind of how these presidencies go in the 1800s, especially in the post-Lincoln ones sometimes. But his lead-up, having this, you know, really finite, like, structure of, like, you know, how he came to power, like, it was very consistent. You'd think that he would just be loyal to everybody who got him there. But once he got into the presidency, he actually, you know, led, like, with a very, like, more, more moralistic you know, got, you know, and no one really expected it, that, you know, he would really perform well. He also had cancer during this time while he was president. And so he had like poor health throughout. He still governed pretty confidently. And, you know, he had a lot more success than, you know, most presidencies. He didn't have any major failings. The country kind of got back on track with being reunited in some sense. You know, the tariff got lowered. And so like the economy got better just this weird like transitional figure kind of into you know the Grover Cleveland days and you know you can go see that podcast if you want to learn more about that but you know Chester not a great Arthur, president not a great president not a great president and so Chester Arthur is this weird you know just boy like you, you don't I think people don't think about him much but like it took a lot of bravery to you know make some of the decisions that he did and he did try to run for re-election he you know got ousted in the um, in a Republican convention because he alienated all of his allies. Nobody wanted to support him. And so they went back to Rutherford B. Hayes. So that is Chester Arthur. You know, what do you what do you think, Yusuf? I mean he's a nice he's a nice fellow. Like like he's the the type of guy you want your daughter or or son to date, you know? The one that's not gonna mess mess them up so bad and just a stable stable partner. What America what needed at that time. Right. Do you think that is, I mean, who would you think is a better president, him or Grant? I think Grant um, did more and and was equally, if not more brave, but I feel like both of them did very well at their job. I mean, obviously, ironing out their gray moral compass, both of them, mm -hmm. um, because of the time and because of what they were trying to accomplish. But it is a weird dichotomy to assess, you know, who is better. 
but I feel like Grant is more impactful than him. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't diminish what what uh, Chester was able to accomplish, though, in okay. his in his short period. Especially, like, you know, it's it's not as it's not. We, we obviously we glossed over it because we we want to cover uh, Garfield in his own right, but the it it's a very traumatic, chaotic, and almost unprecedented uh, landscape for a for a president to die, and you have to like take over and just be like, wait, this is not my job, but I'm gonna do the best that I can, and that's something to be said also of what he was able to do within those circumstances. Yeah, and honoring kind of what he wanted to, like what he. I yeah. mean, it's maybe like LBJ esque because. I mean, he tried to carry out like Kennedy's, you know, the civil rights bill in 1964. Like, I mean, that's what he did. But like, like Chester Arthur, that same way, he, he carried out civil service reform. And so, like, I think that that, yeah, like you said, there's a lot to be said for that. He doesn't have the the corruption baggage, at least as president, that Grant does. Even though Grant is again kind of off hands and all of that, like, you know, his his cabinet is much cleaner much more of like a, a cabinet that's serious about making sure that, you know, corruption is kind of stamped out. And so I, this is, you know, this was a, a surprise to me. And I, like I said, you know, I think the theme at the beginning is that like, you know, Roscoe Conkling and him, you know, they're essentially like best friends. I mean, he tried to get him in the Supreme Court to just say like, you know, here, I'm throwing you a bone. Like we, we've been through it together. You helped me out a lot in your career. I'm not going to, you know, be your, I'm not going to continue to do your bidding though. And so if you want this, you can have it, but otherwise like we're, we're kind of done. And I think that showed a lot of courage too. Um, Who would deny a Supreme Court nomination now, you know? No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, that we'll learn soon, but that's, that's wink, I mean, wink, more, more wink, powerful wink. than the president. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's, I feel like there's a lot of presidents like this. Like, I feel like, John Quincy Adams. Um, oh, he's not like John Quincy. No, no, I'm saying like presidents that if they had better supporting cast, if they had mm. better circumstances around them, yeah. they could have easily been far more impactful. Um, who, I, I would even throw in Herbert in there. Like the Great Depression was not his fault. And and maybe he would have been a far better president if the the country was in a better situation for him to implement his, you know, political strategies and all that stuff. Like there's a lot of I've I've been finding a lot of precedent, a lot of what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, even even Clay, what if Clay would have got in there instead of Tyler? Like there's a lot of what ifs in in his in in, in our political atmosphere. And it's very interesting to ponder over what what could have been, um, yeah. like how how would they have been able to shape our country if you know if Grant was able to run for that third term, or if Chester was not um, alienated and sick because you mentioned that he was sick, so he probably you know yeah. probably wasn't going to be a he great died, like, second term. Yeah, yeah, so he wasn't going to be a good second term president either way. Yeah, but died so. yeah, I feel like those were a lot of wasted opportunities in the beginning of like that post, you know, euphoric founder, founding fathers yeah. era. Like we, we've already 
you know, dismantle a little bit of the mythos of the founding fathers, but that's the, the that's the era that people tend to focus on. But post founding fathers, there's a lot of missed opportunity. And that's what I've been finding. And Chester, even though he was a good president, he could have been far better if he wasn't in this, you know, high school squabble with his former friend. But yeah, well, he was he was pretty good. I mean, I didn't expect him to be you know, as entertaining as it was, and and, and as, a, as a as a solid, nice president, it's, it's been yeah. a rare. It's rare. It's, we've I've been I've, this season. I'm too jaded, so this is a, yeah. this was a brush of fresh air. This is a cleanser, you know. You feel at peace with this one. It's nothing that you can really like get mad at him about, right? Like he, you know, everything he did. I think in his like career, like for if you're just talking about like if he was guided by like a career objectives they all seem very morally good and sound and so that's what i like to that's why i like to, to see in people and presidents um again it's like, like i said it's not often that you get that um you always like find a lot of just like bad within it and you gotta like try to sort it out and i didn't i didn't find a lot of like really terrible stuff or like really any terrible stuff and that's again so refreshing when you're you know researching presidents come to the to the part where everybody loves everybody's favorite part when i make neil pick his favorite president of all time legally binding the last time around woodrow wilson somehow lost to the mythical mm -hmm. creature that is john f kennedy neil are you gonna sing again mr president or are you gonna go with chester the cheetah <laughs> You know, like, this is, these are really, like, hard precedents to compare, you know, when you get in, like, that. that's, what's, like, what's fun about this question is that, like, I don't know how to best compare these because, like, it's just, like, really working with way different circumstances, and, like, I guess it's, it's always happens, but, like, usually there's a clear winner, and, like, if you just had to think of, like, people who, if, like, how are you going to judge this question, like, someone who doesn't make great mistakes, someone who... Like keeps the country in somewhat of a like they don't take the country back at all. But like, how much do they push the country forward? Like, I don't know if Chester Arthur pushed the country forward that well, whereas Kennedy did push the country forward a lot. And so like, I'm having a hard time. But like, uh, like also did Kennedy, Kennedy push it forward or was it LBJ? Kennedy had some shady, you know, foreign uh, foreign policy mistakes, and you know, I just. I, I really, I, I want to, I think I want to make a stand and like how I want to think about, you know, what are good presidents, you know, because I, I want presidents to just be like very confident and good at their job and not, and be careful and not make great mistakes and to like respect the position. And so because of that, I'm picking Chester Arthur. What? Okay. <laughs> because he is, because he, he, res he performs. Oh my way, God, uh, this is like St. Mary's <laughs> going all the way to the fucking finals. What the hell is happening? I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you, Neil. I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah, this one, I thought about this a lot, and I I can't keep giving JFK excuses. You know, I, I think that what he inspired was, that's why I picked it for so long, because he inspired so much good. But I don't think that him himself as like a president would like really honor the office in the way that it should have been, you know, that I think that it should be respected as, whereas like, you know, people really 
again, like approach it with this morality based, like sound decision making. And that wasn't kidding to me. And so um, I am, I am shocked, flabbergasted. I am a loss for words. I honestly thought that we would not have a season three meet season finale twist, but here we are. John F. Kennedy goes down in flames. A last second half court shot by Chester Sheeta, and he is moving on. I'm, 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 I honestly thought that the mystical creature was going to run the gamut all the way to the 40, 40, Fifth, right? Forty-five. Yeah. Oh really? wow. I mean, you mentioned it multiple times that you said maybe he's gonna just run with it, <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I'm gonna be saying mythical creature for twenty plus episodes now. But here we are, Chester Sheeta, with his yeah. with his cheese crusted fingers grabbing on to Neil's favorite president of all time title. Who's going to rip it away from Chester Sheeta? He's fast. He's a cartoon. Nobody can catch him. Yeah. He has sunglasses. He's cool. I mean, I get He's it. Cool. I get why you would pick him. I get it. I, I mean, really, he could be a hard person to beat because, like, I, I think that, again, like, my criteria has been changing as we've been going along. And I think it's, it's trending more in Chester's direction. And so we'll see who has a strong case against him. I guess we've officially sold out. Officially, our how we sell out? Yeah, we're trying to get the Chester Allen uh, money. We're just a bunch of sellouts. Everybody <laughs> knows that that's where the money is, and Neil just took us there. We're now a Chester Chester Allen podcast. Like Chester. we're yeah. so predictable. Those Twitter it's so predictable. Like, have to go crazy, like you. <laughs> All right. So if you've followed along on our, our journey through this podcast, uh, ever since season one, we've been splitting each season by five, five precedents and we do a side episode in between just to give Neil a little bit of a break, doing a lot of research, um, deep dives into precedents. So five up. Five down. Now we're up uh, on our season, mid-season break, and first side episode of season three. Neil, what are we talking about uh, as a side episode? And we might be like sales for this, I guess. But I mean, it's 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 too important. I want to do an episode like this anyway, and it's since it's so you know in, in the news right now. I mean, we need to talk about the presidency and the Supreme Court. Just be like it's about that time we get that understanding and try to you know talk through what's going on right now and you know how you know it's historically tied to presidents as well so we're gonna talk about this so, we're gonna, so is it gonna be like a 90 minute episode about roscoe and his decision not no. to be in the supreme court i don't think roscoe's gonna turn up in that episode ah. but he'll be back he'll be back a couple more times so we'll see him later all right, so thank you for subscribing, for sharing, for listening. You know all the things that people say and do all those things that people ask us to do. Share with your friends, that one person that is always talking about history. Send them our, our podcast. Maybe he'll disagree with Neil. Maybe he is, uh, 
Maybe he hates Chester. You know, there's somebody out there that hates Chester, and they're going wild by Neil's decision. I know. I know. I'm shocked. Still, I'm still like trying to recover. <laughs> All right. See you next uh, in two weeks. Bye. Thank you.